0: Welcome to the podcast of the United Church of Bogota. We are a Bible-based church ministering to the English-speaking community in Bogota, Colombia. We invite you to join our diverse fellowship as we encounter God in worship and experience the impact of His grace on every part of our lives and in our world. To learn more, please visit our website at ucbogota.org. There are those passages that uh, preachers um, have always longed to preach, and that's kind of get them into the ministry. Uh, The passage that we have today is not one of those passages. Um, It's one of the weirdest passages in the whole Bible. As someone said uh, to me uh, in between services, they said, that was kind of PG-13. So... um, We have a PG-13 passage this morning, but we'll try to keep it as PG as we can. Now I've got you really interested, right? Um, We're continuing our series in the life of Moses. And uh, Moses, today we get a chance to peek into the family life of this man of God that God has called to move from Midian, where he's currently living, to go back to Egypt and deliver his people out of slavery and uh, we'll get to see uh, his life at home, some things about him, his role as a dad, and then hopefully learn from that uh, for our, uh, for our uh, role as parents today. And so I invite you to please stand as God uh, speaks to us from his word. We're in Exodus chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that though strange at times and perplexing, we know is inspired and that you have good things in store for us in it. And so we pray that you would help us, give us the strength and the insight by the power of the Spirit to understand those things this morning, and not only understand them, but to have them applied to our lives, that we might become new creatures in Christ and grow as new creatures in Christ. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Please uh, be seated. Well, I want to tell you first uh, about my ideal evening. Uh, I come home from the office after a productive day at work. Uh, My kids and my wife greet me at what is now the elevator door with uh, hugs and smiles. Uh, They've uh, diligently finished up their homework so that they can get back to their favorite book or play the piano or listen to classical music or something like that. Um, When it comes to dinner time, of course, they set the table without any sort of complaints. And uh, we all sit down to a hot meal, and we laugh, and we talk about our days, and before we retire to the bedroom and read scripture and pray right on time at 8 o'clock when everybody's supposed to go to bed. So let me tell you about my real evening's. Um, I come uh, home tired, uh, having accomplished maybe half of the things that I had hoped to accomplish uh, that day. Uh, my kids, after coming home from school, have usually found some sort of screen and are hiding somewhere so, they don't, so uh, I can't find them, uh, veg out a little bit before they do their homework. Uh, Lisa and I usually have to referee a fight at some point about uh, who set the table last uh, and therefore who has to do it tonight. Uh, And then we negotiate with them about who gets to not only set, but then clear the table. At dinner time, four, uh, maybe maybe three or four out of the five of us make it to the dinner table when dinner starts. The other one's kind of finishing one more round of whatever it is uh, that they have going on uh, uh, that, that particular week. Inevitably, one family member doesn't like the dinner that's been made, and so they ask to have something else to eat. Uh, and after dinner, uh, Lisa and I have a lighthearted argument about what we need to do to discipline our kids better and how, uh, who needs to pick up the slack, right? Uh, then we get them to bed much later than we'd hoped after a brief and perfunctory prayer. So I don't know about you guys, but family brings out the best in all of us, doesn't it? And we should find some comfort in this passage because. Uh, While a lot has changed in family life in 4,000 years since this passage uh, was written, uh, some things are still the same. And uh, particularly these verses 24 through 26 uh, are definitely one of the weirdest passages in Scripture. And I'll confess that at the beginning of the week and I sat down and I was going, what am I going to do with with this passage? Should I just skip over it and talk about the other things that are uh, very clear? Um, no, it's something that's there, and, and I found that as I sort of dug into it, that uh, it's, it's one of those passages that's like treasure that's, that's buried a little bit deeper than the other things that kind of sit up on the surface, and, and the hard work that you get to get down to it yields a lot more uh, result. And so what I found is that this is ultimately a passage about how God intends to use our broken and frail families for the good of his kingdom about how God wants to use our imperfect and broken families for the good of his kingdom. And so this morning, I want us to do four things. First, I want us to see what's going on in this passage. What is this, what happened here? I want us to get a sense of of that. And then I want us to see, first, what God requires of our families. Second, why our families often fall short of that requirement. And then finally, what can we do to... Uh, to overcome that to change as families, but before we do that, I, I want to say a quick word to those of you who may be single or uh, younger or don't ha- aren 't married don 't have kids uh, you don 't get to check out for the next twenty minutes. okay This is not uh, just a just a sermon for parents um, the new in the new testament it spe- when it speaks about family, it often uses family terms to speak more about the church than it does about nuclear families and so Uh, Much of what I say that is applied to parents can also be applied equally to spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers and brothers and sisters that you find yourselves in here in the church. And so this isn't just a sermon for parents. And so I'll try to point those out along the way as we go. So first, what's going on in this very weird passage? Well, the passage begins with an international move. Many of you guys know what that feels like. Uh, Moses is going back to Egypt from Midian, which is on the other side of the Sinai Peninsula, and uh, he goes to his father-in-law to get his blessing to take his daughter and his two grandsons uh, back to Egypt uh, in order to uh, do what the Lord's called him to do. He doesn't actually tell Jethro why he says, "I want to go back and see if the people are still alive." Not sure why he doesn't kind of lay out uh, all that out to Jethro, but anyway, uh, he doesn't he doesn't lay out everything, but he. Uh, saddles up a donkey, he puts his wife and his two sons on the donkey, and begins to make this long journey by foot all the way back to Egypt. This is the basic economy of the second millennium BC, right? No free checked bags, no carry-on. Dads, if you thought it was stressful driving the car with your two kids in the back of a sedan, Uh, imagine your wife and two kids on a donkey walking for weeks and weeks and weeks across the desert. Uh, this, is a, this is a long journey. But what we see here is that Moses is a humble man. Moses is not a king traveling in luxury across the desert on a, uh, you know, on a litter that people are carrying. No, he's, he's got a donkey and he's humble, but he's carrying in his hand what he calls the staff of God. Uh, the staff that he said that he could perform these miracles. And the staff that will ultimately bring down the most powerful nation on earth from this humble man. So, so far, so good. But then we get to verse 24. Moses and his family stop at a lodging place, the text says. Uh, but lodging place is you know, a little bit, you know, don't picture like a hotel or a, a roadside motel. This is just a place that you get to when it's dark and you pull off the side of the road, maybe a grove of trees, a place where other travelers have stopped because it's about the same distance from other towns in the area. It's dark. There are campfires around. There's probably the only light and sound that uh, you you can see. It's cold. And Moses and his family set up the tent. And after a meal, maybe some dried fruit and some grains or some cakes, they, they bed down for the night. But something goes wrong in the middle of the night. Zipporah is suddenly woken up. Not sure what wakes her up. Maybe it's the light of the presence of the angel of the Lord. Maybe it's Moses who's who's having a heart attack or something like that where he's gasping for air and his, his moan is, is waking her up. But, but whatever it is, she understands immediately that her, her husband's life is in danger. And not only that, she knows that there is a divine source behind whatever it is that's going on with her husband. She knows that this is God behind this who is, who is threatening the life of her husband. Why is God doing this, she wonders. What's going on? Why is my husband about to die? She has to think quickly, but she doesn't have to think very long because, because very quickly she realized, she remembers the arguments that she and Moses had had about circumcising their son. See, Moses as a Jew was required by the, the law that uh, God had given to Abraham many g- generations before to circumcise his eight-day-old uh, sons uh, as a sign of God's promise, a sign of God's covenant that he had given to Abraham. This was a, not just a cultural marker or something that, uh, that was just a part of what they did as Jews. This, was, this sign had spiritual significance. Because it was a physical sign, an external sign, that God commanded to, to give to these boys in Israel as a way of showing a picture of what needed to happen in the hearts of all the Israelites. That, that, that as the, uh, the foreskin is cut off, so the, the hardness of their hearts needed to be cut away. And that's what God was promising to do in this covenant. To say, that's what I will do inside of you by the power of the Holy Spirit if you trust my promises. And so that was the physical sign that was supposed to be applied to all of the Israelite boys, like the sign of baptism in the New Testament that is a sign of of an internal washing that we all need. The sign of circumcision was a sign of the internal cleansing that we all need as a sign of God's promise. But remember, Zipporah is not a Jew. She's a Midianite. And as a Midianite, this would not have been part of her culture, not have been part of her religious upbringing. So likely when Moses said, okay, eight days old, time to circumcise, she would say, nope, not going to happen. We're not going to do that in my family. Remember, he lived in a whole family of Midianites, and so he had everything working against him to say, no, that's not what we're going to do in our family. But Zipporah knows the minute she sees this going on with Moses, she knows that's what's going on. But now her husband's life is in danger and she has to make a choice. The life of her husband or following her conscience with respect to her son. But she makes a decision. Throws off the blankets. Runs to the gear. Starts rifling through the bags. Remember, it's dark and so she can't, she can't see anything. She doesn't have a headlamp or a flashlight that she's using. She's searching around for the stone knife that she knows she packed somewhere as they were leaving town and she eventually finds it rushes over to her son, pulls back the covers, performs the circumcision, takes the foreskin, puts it on Moses, and cries out, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. She's angry. She's frustrated. And that's, it's a cry of frustration because she's saying, she's saying, I, I'm having to buy you back with the blood of my son. So ladies, don't put that on your husband's anniversary card this year, okay? It's not a compliment. She's angry. She's frustrated. She did this, but she didn't want to do it. So the commotion wakes, up, wakes Moses up. He's suddenly recovered from whatever it was that was about to take his life. And his son is crying. His wife is standing there in the dark with a knife in her hand and blood all over her hands, and she's screaming at him about being a bridegroom of blood. Good morning, honey. What a wake-up call. And so in the morning, he sends Zipporah and and, and his sons back to Midian. They don't go with him for the rest of the journey, and he won't see them again until he comes back out of Egypt with the whole nation of Israel in tow. I'm going to take a guess and say that this is not a common experience in most of your families. At least, I hope it's not. So what does this have to do with us? Why is this bizarre story in the scriptures and what does it have to teach us about the way that our families function in the 21st century? Well first, it teaches us what God requires of our families, it teaches us what God requires of our families. If you are a Christian parent. God's will for you is to raise your children to know Jesus. God's displeasure with Moses here, his fatherly displeasure, is based on the fact that Moses failed to do the most basic thing that God had called him to do, and that is to mark out his sons as belonging to God's covenant family. And notice that Moses didn't do anything positively to harm his children. He didn't take them to a pagan sacrifice or or pray with them to Baal or to Moloch or anything like that, he, he just he didn't do something that God had commanded him to do. In the words of the Book of Common Prayer, he uh, left undone those things which he ought to have done. And so it was a sin of omission, not a sin of commission. But nevertheless, uh, God is displeased with the fact that he didn't do the most basic thing that he was called to do. And friends, it's easy for us as parents to lose sight of that most basic requirement of us as parents. During the first service, we had a a baby dedication with the Gateleys, and uh, they made promises, as as everyone does when when that uh, event takes place. And uh, they said this, they promised this, they said they were going to take every opportunity to diligently teach their daughter to love the Lord Jesus and observe all that he commands, knowing that their primary responsibility as a parent is to train your child to be a disciple of Jesus. Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 6. He says, Fathers, do not pro- provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. And parents, we, we know that, Right? But what happens is so many other goals and and desires for our kids begin to come into our lives and begin to crowd out that most basic responsibility. We want our kids to be physically healthy and so we focus a lot on their diets or on their sleeping. We want them to be well-liked at school, we want them to be socially adept and well-educated, we want them to get into a good college, we want them to marry the right person, to find a fruitful career. And Lord willing, one day to be financially independent. We desire for our kids, maybe in this crowd, to be internationally savvy, uh, multilingual, culturally aware. And those are all good things. We should want many of those things for our kids, but to the extent that those things begin to crowd out and begin to push aside our primary responsibility of raising our kids to know and love the Lord, they become liabilities. And not assets. And I want you to notice the particular role that, that dads play in this process. God goes after Moses here, right? Paul addresses fathers in Ephesians 6: says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but, but, to, but raise them in the spiritual admonition of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean uh, that moms don't play a role in the spiritual nurture of their kids, of your kids. Uh, after all, it's Zipporah, right? Who, takes matters into her own hands and begins to write the ship through her own actions. And the book of Proverbs is full of admonitions to kids to listen to the voice of their mother who has wisdom to share with them and to give to them. Uh, but it does mean that, that fathers, you, and we have a particular responsibility to lead this process, to begin that conversation with your spouse, to say, hey, let's get on the same page together, to learn the faith yourself and to import it yourself so that you have something to pass along to your kids, to uh, have the difficult conversations. It also means that uh, that while others may assist you in that work, whether it's pastors, youth pastors, and Sunday school teachers, mentors, whatever it is, they may assist you. The, the, the buck stops with you. The responsibility stops with you. And it's your responsibility to ensure that it happens. But how do we do that uh, in, a, in a busy uh, in a busy culture like ours, uh, I want to highlight uh, three words from the promises that uh, that we said that the, the Gatelys made in the first service that that, that, I want, that I hope will help in thinking about how to do this. The three words: take every opportunity. Take every opportunity. Oftentimes, we think of like, well, I've got to lead my family spiritually. I've got to. I talk to my kids about the faith. We sort of think about, well, is that supposed to? Am I supposed to have, you know, like give a lecture and give a sermon every day about some sort of topic? No, not necessarily. It's not wrong, but not necessarily. Those words, take every opportunity, mean that God pr- provides you with thousands of opportunities every single day to turn your the hearts of your kids towards the Lord. If they're afraid about something, pray with them. If they're confused about something, say, what do you think God thinks about that? And, 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 and let's go f- find that together. Let's look in the Bible together and find out what that means. When they succeed, help them give God thanks for whatever it is that has happened to them. Talk to them about what God is doing in your life. Make church and uh, the, the, spiritual th- the spiritual means that God has already given you, his word and the sacraments as, as, as aids in growing your faith. Make those non-negotiables in your home. And as you look for more opportunities, the more you look for them, the more you're going to see them. and The more you're going to find those to, be, uh, to present themselves in your life. And so that's the first thing we see, what God requires of our families. The second thing we see, thankfully, is that we face a number of headwinds as families with respect to this area of our life. There's a number of reasons why we fall short of what God requires that I want us to see, and I hope we, you can relate to these as I did. There are two clues in this passage that help us to see those two, two headwinds that we face. First, uh, the re- one reason why we fall short is because we don't want to rock the boat. We often don't want to rock the boat. Uh, remember, Moses is raising his children in a, a culture that's foreign to his faith, uh, that doesn't share his convictions about God and we saw how Zipporah was not happy with the fact that Moses was wanting to circumcise one of their sons and so likely one reason why Moses didn't press this issue is because he didn't want to upset his wife. We've all heard the mantra happy wife happy life, right? Well, Moses took that as as uh the mantra by which he was going to live in this area of his life and rather than uh rather than upset his wife, he was not going to be faithful to what God had called him to do. Rather than face a moment of discomfort and say, honey, we've got to talk about something difficult. He chose comfort over faithfulness. And uh, friends, we often do the same thing. We, we want to keep the peace at home, and so we don't uh, want to rock the boat. And we say, yeah, let's, let's just not have that difficult conversation. Uh, at, at this time, this is it's a lesson for, for wives as well here that uh, you you have a, a great power to make it more difficult or easier for dad to to engage in this process to lead in this area, and so uh, what we see here is that one of the biggest headwinds we face is this is often disagreements between spouses about what to do, and so uh, the, one encouragement is to continue to press through those difficulties to have those difficult conversations. The second headwind we face is fatigue. Did you notice at the beginning of the passage that Moses put his sons on the donkey? Moses had two sons, Gershom uh, and, and, um, I didn't write it down, I knew I was going to forget. it. It starts with an E. Gershom and another one. E, we'll call him. He has two sons, but in the middle of the night, only one son is circumcised. What happened? Well, most people believe that with the first son, Moses was like, here's what we're going to do. And so they circumcised the first son. But then after the first one, maybe he was just like, I don't want to go through the conflict again that I went through and fighting my family over circumcising the first son. And so he chooses not to do it with the second one. Maybe he was like, man, that was just not worth it because I'm not sure that that did any good for me and for my family and for my kid. And so he doesn't do it. Maybe he's like almost every parent in this room who have great expectations and great efforts and great stamina with the first kid. And then with each kid, those standards begin to fall just a little bit more. Right? We had, we had high uh, expectations. In fact, my kids always say, our oldest Liam always says, you know, what, the one thing that bugs me so much is that when the younger kids get whatever privilege uh, that, that I had to wait for, they get it earlier than I do. I'm like, okay, guilty as charged, right? But there's a temptation, friends, because parenting is hard, raising our kids is hard, discipling our kids in the Lord is hard, and there is a strong temptation to just want to take your foot off the gas and just coast into empty nesterdom. So that's a big headwind that we face Again, to choose comfort over faithfulness. So what do we do? What do we do? We face these headwinds. We've got this great responsibility. How, how, How can we change? How can we do things differently? Well, God gives us hope in his word. This is a hard word for us to hear. It was a hard word for me to hear this week to be convicted by God's Spirit through this to write these words to you because I don't want to pretend that our family has got this all right and that we that we do this all well. We we are struggling and fighting the same battles that you are, uh, struggling these against these same headwinds, fighting these same battles and and uh, find ourselves trying to, to to move forward in this area. It's hard for others of you to hear because uh, maybe some of you who are older and whose kids have left the house, it's, it's easier to look back. It's easy to look back on your life and just to see all the missed opportunities, all the wasted time. And particularly if your kids are not walking with the Lord, it's begin, that, that weight can feel so heavy to say, I wish I could have it over again. But there is hope with the Lord. There is hope with the Lord. First, there is hope because there is still time to repent. If you are here this morning and breathing, there is still time to repent. Moses doesn't die in this passage. Moses doesn't die because his wife began to right the ship. And so what could have been a a death sentence on his life became a warning to him that things were not right and he needed to turn things around. And friends, even though Zipporah didn't have a great attitude about it, even though she was frustrated and angry about it, God honored the repentance that she showed and, and he and delivered Moses' life from death because of her actions. And you might think, what, well, it's too late for me. My kids are, are, are already too far grown. I have too many bad habits. I have too many things I need to change. I just, I can't possibly right the ship at this point. But friends, if you are here, there's still time to change. It may mean changing one small thing, one small adjustment to your schedule, one small adjustment to the, to the, uh, to the to your schedule as you speak to your kids one question one conversation away it doesn't have to be big but whatever it is that you change even if it might be small god will honor it and he will multiply it beyond what you can imagine if we turn to him in repentance there is still time and finally there is hope not just because there's time to repent but there's hope because we have jesus there's hope because we have Jesus. The main reason why God was so concerned with Moses performing this rite of circumcision for his son is because he gave that sign to his people as a way to prepare them for the coming of Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 refers to Jesus' death on the cross as the circumcision of Christ. The circumcision of Christ. Why does he do that? Because on the cross, Jesus was cut off from his people, so that you and I could be brought near to God. Jesus received the, the ultimate blood sacrifice of laying down his own life, spilling his own blood, so that your blood wouldn't have to be spilt. He gave his life being cut off from God, cut off from his people, judged by God, so that God could circumcise our hearts and cut away the hardness of our hearts to to forgive us of our sins and to make us right again with him. And so, friends, in Christ, uh, we have forgiveness for all of our failures as parents, for all of our failures as spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. In Christ, we have and hear the voice of the one who says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. In Christ, we have the only one who can do for our kids what we could never do ourselves, even the best parents in this room, and that is to bring them back to their father, their true father, the father To whom all all of us, dads in the room, pray that we would even look like just a little bit in a shadowy form to point them back to God their Father. And so, parents, lead your children to Jesus. Leave them an inheritance that will never fade away, or rust, or be stolen. Teach them to build their house upon the rock that will never be moved that will never be shaken. Show them and lead them to Jesus. Father, we confess that this is a hard word to hear. It's a hard word to hear because we, we struggle. We struggle to continue to be faithful to you in, in, our, in our job as parents over the long haul, the 25, 30 years you call us to be uh, parents with kids in our house but lord we know that there is abundant grace and help from you that there is uh, that that you meet us where we need you and so we we pray for your help as parents and we pray for our kids we pray for the kids of this church that despite our failures despite uh, all that we aren't that they would grow up to never know a day when they couldn't call God their father and couldn't and and couldn't call Jesus their older brother. And that they would find the joy of the Lord in all that they do. We can't accomplish that work, Lord, but you can. And so we pray that you would use our broken and imperfect families for that end. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to support the ministry of UCB, please visit our website at ucbogota.org.